It's making noise. Is that too loud? No, it's okay. No, it's making noise. So when <clears throat> I was uh, thinking what I wanted to talk about tonight, I I kept finding my mind going in two different directions. I wanted to talk about two things, and I think, but but they're like opposites. They're like complete opposites of each other. And how can I put it together? And then when I was sitting this morning, I had like a revelation. I said, oh, there it's not obvious. This paradox, one of the many paradoxes of the Dhamma, and they totally belong together. <laughs> they just seem like complete opposites <laughs> to me, anyway. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, what I want to talk about really is um, it's what I call. Uh, Undaunted courage, not fearing freedom, the sense of the the vastness of the path and the totality of our commitment that's called up again and again and again, and that this is motivation, this is called up is absolute non clinging. How to have total commitment and motivation without any striving or clinging, and that's. The paradox, but that's our path. So that's it. You got to figure it out for yourselves. <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> so I'll babble on, but basically you have to figure it out for yourself. This is one of those talks where I'm actually talking to myself as much as I'm <laughs> sharing with you all. Because, <laughs> you know, okay. So really, we've talked about the Four Noble Truths. And Really, this, the fact that, as I said, the path is vast, is profound. It encompasses every aspect of our life. There's nothing left out if we're really seriously uh, taking this path to heart. And when we talk about, uh, the Buddha talked about, and Annie talked about, I know the other night, the third noble truth, the ending of suffering. So here, obviously, one would think that is why we enter in and what inspires us to keep going on the path. But here's where it, I think, gets interesting. Is that really something that is an inspiration, a motivation for each of us? And it's talked about in different ways. I'm not going to give a whole talk on that, but sometimes uh, the sense of the heart-mind completely freed from greed, hatred, and delusion or of the deathless, the unconditioned, or as the Buddha said often, the mind of non-clinging, that absolutely nothing is worth clinging to. Nothing can be clung to. One who knows that nothing is to be clung to directly knows everything. That's a quotation from a sutta. So with this, does one's mind open to that as a possibility? Upandita Sayadaw, who's a very, very strict teacher, very embedded in the um, Burmese Theravada modality of the scriptures and the commentaries. But he used to talk about a moment of pure mindfulness, real presence of mind, is a mo- free from kalesa, free from the torments, greed, hatred, delusion. He would call a moment of mindfulness a moment of freedom. And then there's the idea that the absolute freedom is the complete liberation 
of a heart and mind where greed, hatred, delusion no longer arises. But even a moment of freedom from clinging, from greed, hatred, delusion, a moment of mindfulness, a moment of freedom. This is something that's accessible to all of us. And what the Buddha was saying really in terms of the vastness of this path and what it calls out of us, it calls out commitment, it calls out everything, but at the same time, as Ajahn Buddhadasa was saying, he was a Thai forest monk. He died in the, in the last, late 1990s. But he had a, 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 a talk that he was giving to Thai people that's well known now in the West because it was translated by Bhikkhu Santikaro. Which he talks about Nibbana for everyone. And that's what he's really saying. Nibbana is for everyone. That's what the Buddha said. You know, if it were not possible... I would not ask you to do so. But it is possible. And I think some of this was was read in another talk. It is possible. So I ask you to do so. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as me or mine. It's kind of like the the clarion call. We start out, I'll be nice, maybe I'll get rid of some, you know, stress. And we find out we're moving into a whole nother depth of direction that we may have had uh, idea of when we first started. I find it, this potential of cultivation of the heart-mind, both deeply, deeply inspiring, really motivating, and also, at times, depending on the mind state, right, at times extremely daunting, extremely challenging, right? I mean, if you're thinking, sure, no problem. (laughs) Freedom from clinging, yeah, I got that one down. We're headed that way. You know, you've been here just about a month now. You're getting a drift, right? It's not quite so straightforward. But, so, this, it actually really motivates and inspires me to think of the uh, the uncompromising way that the Buddha spoke and shared his awakening and that this is possible for us. So in this motivation for Buddha, thank, two things that I never lost sight of in, my, in his practice. Not to shrink away from the struggle and not to rest contented merely with wholesome states of mind. So here we're in the don't shrink back from the struggle. And the next I'll get to with absolute (laughs) non-clinging. Don't shrink from the struggle. This is the paradox. So what I find um, really interesting in my own practice, in my own life, because practice is our life, it's not just the retreat, and in talking to so many people over so many years. But I see it again here, four weeks into practice. You've, you're all in different places. I mean, each, each person's particular path is unique, even though the processes and the, way, the truth of things is the same. It's each person's process is unique. But everybody 
is really in there and going through so much stuff. So from now, you know, different, you've, you're probably getting a sense of like the sine waves of practice. You get against that it's not that you're doing something wrong, that it keeps going up and down and up and down. And people come in and say, well, what's going on? And now people say, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, what was happening yesterday, well, that's over, you know. I don't know. Yesterday was incredible, but today it's horrible. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And then I think, great, you're really here now. This is really dying into the practice. It's what's happening. And so you can see, it's sometimes you're seeing a lot. There may be a lot of insight into particular personal personality patterns, difficult or suffering personality patterns. You may be noticing more and more wholesome states arising, the Brahma-viharas or mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. You may be seeing uh, different aspects of the three characteristics. And it doesn't just come up in neon lights. Now you're getting an insight into impermanence. You know, it kind of, kind of slowly seeps in. Sometimes you get a hit, but it's kind of slowly seeping in. The fact that you start to notice you've had 52 emotions in the last three hours. You know, what's the matter with me? Nothing. It's not you. This is impermanence. Just sit back and let it roll. So sometimes we're really having a lot of insight. And we think, even if we try not to, back there we go, right. It's clicking. This is how it's supposed to be. And then, right, then either I understand impermanence now, I've got it. That was in the bag, right? <laughs> we all know this. I don't have to go further with it. The next day, a mental state comes up and you're like, this is how I've been my whole life. Every memory that comes up is from that mental state. This is how I'm going to be the rest of my life. It's completely hopeless. You come in, the teacher points it out, and you think, you kind of nod and go, yeah, but you walk out and go, what do they know? I know. This is how it is, right? And then at some point we go, but what's the point? I'm going through all this. I see it so clearly. And all this stuff comes back, at least as strong as before, if not stronger. What am I doing here? What are they talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And I could be watching the baseball game. <laughs> a staff a friend, a friend on staff was just should I go to Joseph's group? Should I go to Carol's talker? Should I go home and watch the baseball game? And he was saying, said, I said, this could be your night to get enlightened. He said, you think I could watching, you know, rooting against the Yankees with a version in my mind? Slim. Chances are slim. <laughs> this is a moment of our life that we all have. But sometimes you think, I'm going for the baseball game because what's the point anyway? I could sit on the cushion and watch a version, or I could watch something enjoyable and feed a version. Either way, you know. Okay, I'm not advocating that. But we start to really see it gets hard to trust. So this is just normal. Honest, this is normal. This is how it is for all of us. But what gets interesting to me, the, the, the piece I want to talk about, in terms of the, the vastness, the, the uncompromising nature of our commitment, which, of course, you can't make a commitment and it stays, coming and going all the time. 
Our understanding of what we're doing deepens as wisdom grows. Our motivation ebbs and flows, comes from different, you know, aspiration may change. But so sometimes over periods of practice, so this is a good long chunk of four weeks, I want to talk a little bit about what I call times of um, hitting the wall. And I don't mean like hitting the wall of it's just it's really difficult and it's hard to be with, as Jill was speaking about last night. No, that feels like hitting a wall, but you're still practicing with it. That's not what I mean. That's part of it. But there's times when, um, for different reasons, something happens and it, it may shake, not just doubt as a hindrance, but it may shake your sense of motivation or sense of purpose. Sometimes people say, oh, if awakening includes this, maybe I didn't really want it kind of thing. And it's, um, it's poignant. It's, it's just a passing thing. But I, I just want to highlight a few because I think it happens to most of us at some point where you feel a little shaken. You know, you look, and I'll give you just a few examples. You can find your own. But the kind of thing where you just are in a mind state and you're looking back over your life and you think, I've been practicing for X number of years and this is what's going on? This hindrance is still taking over, and I believe it. And it's not just that momentary normal aversion, but somehow deeper in that moment. I was like, ah, you know? And so I just want to pinpoint a few of those because I think they're fascinating and important to recognize, to include it as part of all of our practice. Because once we recognize, oh, yeah, let me look and see, and I'll just say a few things about it. But it's a rare person who doesn't come up to this. And much of it, of the kind of sense of shaking your motivation, shaking your commitment, the sense of, well, this can't be right, a lot of it is due to whatever idea or view you might be holding in the background of your mind, I think, Guy or someone mentioned that recently, Um, often not recognized about what's supposed to happen or how practice is supposed to be or what the trajectory should be. You all know how we do this. But it can be a really deeply held belief one that when it just isn't aligning with the actuality of our experience, it can just breathe this, well, this can't be right. I can't do it. Rare person who doesn't have this, but There's a line where the Buddha, he's talking about sense of self and say, but for in whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that. I want to say that about whatever ideas our mind and thoughts might have about what freedom and awakening are going to be like. In whatever way we conceive, the facts are ever other than that. This mind of that what we know, you know, we can't know what we don't know. We can't imagine from this. Those of you who are older in my age group will remember uh, Krishnamurti. Maybe some young people don't know who Krishnamurti was. He was very well known in our day. And his famous line is, freedom from the known. The known as an idea that we project what Awakening is like, what does it mean, a mind of non-clinging? And all kinds of stuff gets projected. And we want to know. We want a sense of where we're going. And we all talk about it. But really, at heart, we can't know. We can't know. 
So I just want to give a couple, few little examples that came to my mind. And one is that the first one I mentioned in a talk the other night, really obvious, when we have known how it's been, we know how practice works, say, I, I, and, and we don't recognize the changing conditions and we take it personally. I mentioned in my talk on impermanence about this bhikkhu Asaji, who was ill and dying and really upset, you know, because he couldn't get concentrated anymore. And the Buddha's going, hey, conditions have changed. And anyway, awakening isn't about concentration. But that's something we can all relate to that, where we're taking it personally. It's a Sakaya Ditti, a personality view that we're putting on and, and I am not able to do this thing and this thing being concentrated or seeing through permanence or whatever it is. This thing is the, what has to be happening for the path to be developing to freedom. And I can't do it, although I used to be able to. So clearly, I've gone backwards and I'm failing. What's the, and it, Not far from what's the point, I can't do it. As Asaji was saying to the Buddha, let me not fall away. And there's a lot of suffering in that. If we can see, oh yeah, there's a view I'm comparing impermanence, fine, it's gone. But sometimes it goes a little deeper than that. And there's kind of this insidious sense, I can't do this. I can't do this. Maybe I could before, or maybe it's something that's talked about or we've read about or heard about. And it's not occurred in our experience. And very deeply the sense can come, and I can't do it. Again, this is the uh, Sakaya Ditti, the personality view. It's kind of like a cage of Sakaya Ditti, the cage of personality view, where we're viewing it all through our personality and the ideas we have about this personality, this body and mind, that we just think we know how it is. And it's like this, and this is, obviously, I can't do this. And I've done everything to the best of my ability, and this is how it is, it's over. So we don't even know. We don't even know what's possible. We don't even know what directions the practice might go, and we don't know what's possible in the experience of this mind and body. I know in my first Anyway, some long retreat. I'm a person without a lot of energy. And a lot of people think, oh, you need to sleep a certain amount. And in daily life, maybe you do. But then it happened. And here, a lot of people have been saying they're waking up really early, filled with energy, and the mind goes, oh, but I need so and so much sleep. And they go back to sleep and actually wake up feeling crappy. Because you don't need. And even if you do, who knows? We're in the cage, and this is a simple example. There's much more grosser than this, much more subtler than this. In the cage of this is what this mind and body can do. It can't do anything outside of that. So why even try? And then it can go, well, don't push outside of your, of your comfort zone. Sure, when you're really suffering and difficult stuff's coming up, the idea of pushing outside of the comfort zone, colored with aversion, is not helpful. But when we're interested and there's energy and the practice is going along and we think, oh, I better go to bed now because I might be tired tomorrow. No, you have no idea. You have no idea what's happening now. I can remember many times I'd think, 
I've got to go to bed now. I'm falling asleep on my face. And I walk out into the dining room, and then I just my body just starts walking back and forth. And it's like I feel like the Dhamma took over. So my mind wants to go to bed. My body's going to do walking meditation. So the mind might as well come along with it. And that's a simple example, but just not to to just die into the idea of this is all that's possible. Look and see. I don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. Don't be afraid of your own aspiration. When things aren't going well and you're running into one of these walls, well, I just can't do this. This is what concentration should be like. For some reason, concentration is one of the bugaboos that often people get really caught on. You know, we'll say, but there's a lot of mindfulness. I don't care. There's not concentration. What about calm? Calm. There's investigation. <laughs> yeah, investigation. Anyone can investigate, but concentration proves it's going somewhere, right? <laughs> and there's nothing you can say to bust you off of it until if you just can keep going, keep going, you'll see through that. But anyway, don't be afraid of your own aspiration. Say, well, it can't happen for me. I'm just a nudnik and I'm doing my best, but I'll never experience freedom from clinging. The best I can do is shuffle through the retreat and maybe feel a little more at ease, you know, at the end and have some nice moments, but, you know, nothing's ever going to happen for me. The cage of Sakaya Ditti. The cage of believing that. Just see when it's like that. Say, who knows? Die into this moment. See what's happening. So that's one hitting a wall. Another one is what I alluded to earlier when we're starting to see or beginning to see painful suffering habits of our mind, maybe personality habits that we're starting to see, self-hatred, for example, or any personality habit, greed, or uh, like dhamma habits of clinging, right? And we really have time where you're seeing it coming up with interest and really experiencing the deluded nature and the suffering aspect of it, and really with interest. And wow. That's so interesting, I really see. Whether it's the personal um, pattern or the clinging pattern, you really get it. And then it keeps on coming. And more, and more. And then, especially if it's a painful personality, you, you not only experience it, you not only get angry and yell still, but you exquisitely experience the shame of it because you're much more aware through the whole process. And people have said, what, this is making me more neurotic, this practice. I'm just more aware. I'm suffering. It's a phase. It's not making you more neurotic. But you think, what? This isn't how it's supposed to work. And it can, it can shake our faith if you let yourself keep believing that. Seda Upandita used to talk about don't stop within. Like, don't stop within. And that would be, one of that is not being satisfied merely with wholesome states of mind. It's something that we can find, of course, when there's really beautiful, wholesome states, whether they're of uh, collectedness or joy or uh, mindfulness or interest or calm. Of course, the habit of mind is going to cling some. I'm not talking about that. that. I don't call that stopping within. We just watch that. That's exploring how clinging works and how it kind of freezes things. But sometimes it can be, and this can be like quite a profound experience of deep equanimity or not just some moments on retreat, but in your life, I'm not just talking about retreat, where you come out and you feel 
for, for me, for example, much more equanimous, more balanced, much more at ease and open and flowing with things. And I can see this part of the mind goes, well, that is good enough. You know? And sometimes we can see um, for our own, and this just requires a lot of honesty as we go through our life of practice, can start to see how as we begin practice, I mean, most of us, we just want to get rid of some suffering. I mean, that's normal and that's all we know. So the motivation will deepen and widen as our understanding deepens and widens. And sometimes you might really see, and it takes, no one else has to ever know. (laughs) You just look for yourself. You say, oh, actually, really my motivation was just to get more comfortable. You know? That's really all. But now I am more comfortable. And sometimes people just feel like a sense of the urgency or a sense of the motivation kind of going out. Okay, you can cruise. This is good enough. But when, when you really have the Dhamma, the Dhamma bugging you and the wisdom's growing, that won't, that won't do it for long, you know, because nothing stays. That sense of, of balance, you still have more, but it, it'll come and go. But really, the wisdom will keep waking us up, we'll keep looking, we'll, we'll reassess, we'll reconnect with our motivation and really find that, that sense of looking, yes, is, do I truly trust that at moments it's possible to free the heart and mind from clinging? Is that a possibility? You don't just think it's a, you know, a lot of hogwash. It really is. Find the way to motivate ourselves again in whatever way. Don't just st- stop within in that way. Another thing that I found really interesting in myself frequently, on long retreats particularly, as your practice is deepening, the sense of, of clinging is so strong, seeing a lot of habits of personality view, of so, and, and they're, they're getting shaken up. And sometimes there's a, it's like weird, but it's like a, a sense of a resistance, a fear this is the best I can put it, maybe different for you, at losing a sense of myself, a sense of some kind of identification with a particular personality or how I feel about myself. It's hard to really put it in words because when I lay out my personality, I think, well, am I attached to that? But there's, <laughs> there's something that can come, a sense of, you know, it's working too well. And sometimes, well, if liberation from clinging, and this is where the mind starts throwing out ideas of how it might be, but we really can't know. But if liberation from clinging means I don't love my family anymore, if liberation from clinging means I don't care about my grandkids, or I can't enjoy music, or I I can't tell the taste of good food from bad food, or I just won't bother, you know, whatever, whatever our mind makes up. Everything's just going to be a dull gray blob, and I don't care about anything. Is that what we're talking about? That's not too enticing, right? So our mind makes something up, and it can just have the sense of shaking. If I'm not going to care about engagement with the world, I don't want to do it. So notice when that comes for you. You see what it is. And not believing the thought because the mind can't know. I did notice one point in a, in a retreat when I was in Burma, of seeing, I was really in there, but I, I saw how the mind was really happy to give up all the unpleasant aspects 
of my personality and things of life. But it wanted to somehow hold on to the pleasant ones, you know. No, I can still get to have all this stuff, you know. Remember, when I was talking about craving, tanha, it's not about the objects. It's about the quality in the heart, in the mind. No, if freedom from clinging means I can't have music, I'm not going there. You know, and again, we've missed the picture. But it's interesting just to see how our mind, our heart can come up against these kind of walls. And for a while, we bounce back and go, "Uh uh-uh, no thanks, not me. Trungpa Rinpoche calls, I think someone mentioned this, but Trungpa Rinpoche calls it nostalgia for samsara. You know? Even though there's so much clearly unnecessary suffering in the reactive formations of my personality, the way I react to things when there's wanting, when there's identification, when there's fear, there's still some kind of comfort, you know, comfort with just feeling comfortable with the way we're used to being with ourselves in body, in mind, is what I call a comfort zone. I feel of it like, like putting on an old, tatty, dirty old bathrobe but one of, that you've been wearing for 40 years and you just love it and put it on, you know, and it looks like crap, but uh, just don't want to get rid of it. Nostalgia for samsara. I'm comfortable like this in this the cage of Sakaya Ditti, the mind creating moment to moment. So just moments of moving out of the familiar. It's uncomfortable. The mind likes to be familiar. I've felt in myself at times, and more noticeable on deep retreat, but can be in life, where it feels like a, a series of small deaths. A death of, I couldn't even say to what, but it feels like a death to some aspect of belief of my personality, or some way I'm so familiar, I'm really familiar with being this cranky person, you know, who would I be if I was friendly to people, you know, <laughs> exaggerated, but it just feels familiar, and we just want to hunker down there. And the practice is calling us, actually, to open into the unfamiliar, into the unknown, every single moment. Nibbana for everyone. It's a rare person who doesn't come up against some of these or other, many others. These are just the ones that came to my mind. It's challenging. It's demanding for everyone. No part left unexamined in terms of, of all aspects of our life. You know? But these times when we're, when we're butting up against the uncomfort moving out of the comfort zone of body or mind, or just saying, no, this isn't familiar, this can't be right, I don't know where this is going. Those are really, on retreat here, the valuable, juicy moments. Not to get something, just to open into, to practice stretching our trust, our motivation, our commitment. Commitment to what? Not to any result. And this is the paradox. We're totally motivated, committed to awakening from suffering. Any idea of what that should be like and leaning into it is striving. So what do we commit to? What's the motivation? 
Freedom from clinging is absolutely uncompromising. So what's required, this is okay, how I think of it. What's required is moment to moment, total commitment to open fully into the unknown of this moment right now. This moment right now is all there is. And the complete willingness to trust, open into it with awareness is the commitment that's called forth from us again and again. It shakes us up. Awakening shakes us up, shakes up our views of the world. Uh, Enlightenment doesn't like confirm us, gratify our sense of self, make us feel all comfortable and nice and secure. You know the feeling of how nice it'll be when I'm enlightened? Guess what? Guess what isn't around for that? (laughs) The sense of me is what gets seen through. You don't have to get rid of it. It's just seen through as a construction that arises and passes moment to moment, another sankara, another mental construction. It's seen through. And so all of our views, beliefs, attachments, ideas, strategies of self-interest, they're all going to be challenged. And a lot of the holding and a lot of the discomfort we feel, often it's subtle and unconscious, is around that. Just some subtle sense of who I am and what I want is is being challenged. But we can't think our way into this. Don't even think about it. Just our support is moment-to-moment awareness. Read this from Ajahn Sumedho. As one begins to realize or to recognize non-grasping as the way, then emotionally one can feel quite frightened by it. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart, and it can be frightening. But if we have the faith, and faith that's a confidence, the willingness to continue being aware, to continue bearing with these emotional reactions, and with awareness allow things that arise to cease. I just want to say as if we could stop that. But with awareness to allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find stability not in achievement or attaining, but in being, being awake, being aware. So the way my mind works, what really is the, the again and again motivation, I would say total motivation, but it's just called up from us again and again and again, is this willingness to Trust and surrender into this moment awareness of just what's happening. How do we continue to discover the courage, the wisdom, the humility to do that? It's really a shift of motivation. The motivation, yeah, not the the motivation to awaken, but our our habitual kind of worldly way of doing anything is to lean in, imagine, try and get there, try and make it happen, try and, you know, all the stuff that turns into striving. 
It may begin as some vega, as real urgency, a lot of energy. You bring it to practice. You know how as practice goes on, you can come and you can be really there in the beginning and putting in a lot of energy and it's balanced. And then somehow it gets all screwy and striving comes in. Have you noticed that? And then, so there can be enormous commitment and energy without the striving, but just given the habits of our mind, sooner or later we start leaning into some idea or some experience or compare, and, and the striving comes in. So the motivation, to me, it sh- again, this is my personal way of thinking about it, from, it shifts from attaining to what Ajahn Sumedho says, to being aware, to being awake. When? Only right now in this moment. It's all in the motivation. It kind of shifts from wanting awakening to just loving awareness. Not in order for anything else, but just because that's life in this moment. I'm going to read a couple different voices about about this. This is Ajahn Sumedho again. So we have an ideal in our mind of how reality should be, but that's not how it is. I heard this on a talk. He was laughing as he was saying this. (laughs) The ideal versus the reality. Life is fair and unfair. There's pain and pleasure, success and failure. It just keeps going like this. With steady awareness, we begin to recognize the nature of conditioned phenomena. Conditions continually arising and ceasing in consciousness. When with awareness, when with awareness we recognize this, we start to awaken out of confusion and delusion to the real. We recognize the real. And he says, awareness is not a state, not something we get behind and observe. It's a recognition. It's a verb. And then he says, Because the real isn't what you're expecting, I tell you. (laughs) And he starts laughing. (laughs) Okay, from Andy Olensky, who used to be the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. As sati grows, as mindfulness grows, our attention, mental capacity, gradually is shifted from the objects of attention to the process of being aware. This involves an attitude of letting go, of not holding on so much to the object, abandoning attachment to it. The mind is a dynamic process. When the mind is stuck on what has arisen, it is rigid and limited. But the mind that is letting go moment after moment keeps opening to the emerging flow. Just opening into the moment. Opening into the moment. Okay, now Mingyur Rinpoche. We give attention to the object of meditation to support the recognition of awareness. The target is not the object. Awareness is what's being cultivated. Remember, we've talked about this when we talk about um, choiceless attention. It's the steady attention, the steady awareness that we're cultivating, not object. And if you're doing uh, metta, or samadhi practice, even though the object is ostensibly steady, it's really the steadiness of awareness that we're cultivating on the one object. So, back to Mingyur. We recognize the quality of the mind, not just the phenomena perceived by the mind. 
So we've said that, you know, there's whatever's arising in the knowing of it. We're beginning to recognize more and more the knowing, the quality in the mind. Mingyur continuing. Discovering our own awareness allows us to access the natural steadiness and clarity of the mind, which is independent of the conditions and circumstances and independent of our emotions and moods. Awareness does not increase or decrease whether we are happy or sad. We don't attain awareness, rather we learn to recognize it. Same thing Ajahn Sameto just said. And again, if, when, as we cultivate a sustained recognition of awareness, we start to recognize that awareness itself is inherently calm, no matter how turbulent the mind. This allows us to discover a sense of peace and stability that is not dependent on the presence or absence of pleasant or unpleasant feelings. So you get a sense, this sense of just opening to exploring, exploring this awareness of what? Of whatever's arising in this moment. This sense, and for me, it's really helped. I'm not being aware of this pain so it gets better. I'm not being aware of this pain to get more concentrated. I'm being aware because this is what's occurring now. And when you're really focused on the object, you don't notice the mindfulness, the awareness. But the more and more and more we really begin to trust Okay, awareness with whatever's occurring, what's ever occurring. And we start to recognize, as Semedo says, how conditions come and go. We start to get, at moments, just an intimation of this potential of, of ease and peace that is not dependent on what's occurring. But as soon as we're being aware so we can feel that, it's moved again into uh, wanting, leaning forward. And you can feel the difference. So then just the, the, the thing I just want to talk a little bit about here towards the end is just this sense of, of really just loving awareness as awareness not to get anywhere, just to surrender into the unknown of this moment because that's all there is. A story that I, I've told often before, but it, it's, it's really been a very helpful image for me even though it's about someone else and it's, of course, complete projection of my mind, but it, it works anyway. I was at, um, so once when I was staying at Ramana Ashram, Ramana Maharshi Ashram in southern India at Arunachala, Tirvanamalai. And so it's a big ashram, very well run, and um, there's a, a building that, that has in one part of it what's called his samadhi. It's different from how we use it. It's like the marble tomb. And one of the things people do is really circumambulate that. That's the thing you do. And in the other half of the room, it's like a little barrier, the other half of the room, you can sit and do whatever. And every evening, for half an hour before the evening meal is served, the, the people who live and work and run the ashram, come. the women and men come and sit and do Vedic chanting for half an hour. And, and a lot of the people who are staying there, you can come and just listen to that. So I was there one night listening to that. And also other times, of course, I'd walk around the samadhi. And it was really interesting to see and be part of 
all the different energy of the people walking around that samadhi, you know. Sometimes you could just feel wanting, maybe this is more in the Westerners because I could more relate to wanting to really see what Ramana was talking about, wanting to really be free, or other people, you know, prostrating, or so much devotion, or walking around yakking with each other and not even paying any attention at all, you know. But it's this walking around the samadhi, it's this thing, you know. So, so then they were doing the chanting this evening, led by the president of the ashram. And the way it works there, when you go to eat, um, you sit in rows. I don't know how many people are there at one time, maybe a couple hundred people. And they're very clear. If it's your night, they know if you're, if you're meant to be there. And when it's your day to go, they, you couldn't get in to eat because they know you're not there. It's amazing how they know who you are. So anyway, you line up, you know, sitting on the, on the, on the concrete floor in rows facing each other. And for a plate, you have a banana leaf, no... no utensils, and they, the people who run the ashram, led by the president, come by with big pails and give you the food. And so that's something he does every night, the president. He comes and serves everybody the meal. So they were doing the chanting, and so now this is to my projection part. So at the end, it ended, and he got up, just so simple. He just got up and walked around the samadhi, but it just, it just felt very simple and present, and then went off to serve the meal. So to me, this is like an example of the simplicity, the simplicity of awareness and presence, not having to do some big showy thing and not needing some uh, amazing, interesting experience that's worthy of awareness. But to me, again, you can see how much I've projected, but it's really helped me so much. This sense of... um, The shift from wanting and needing awakening, the shift from wanting to understand, to just the simplicity of total awareness with what's happening now. You get up, you walk around the samadhi, and you go and serve the people there. And whatever's going on in your mind and heart, you take it with you. To me, that's like the shift from wanting something to simply loving awareness. And whatever's occurring now is all we need to surrender into, to open into, to bring us back, to help us re-recognize awareness. You don't need anything else. Just opening into the unknown of what is. It's like it's radical. When you find yourself somehow in a struggle and stuff isn't good enough, and you come to us and we just say, well, just look at continuity through the day. You think, No, just get up and brush your teeth and walk into the hall with full loving awareness of that. Awareness doesn't care if it's aware of how the toothpaste feels on your tooth or if you're having some incredible, beautiful bliss experience. Awareness isn't better or worse. And so the simplest, simple activity just completely surrender into it with awareness brings us back to recognizing awareness. Every aspect of our phenomenal life exhibits the three characteristics. It's not more or less present in something really painful or something really beautiful or something really mundane. Anywhere we can see. So it's really this this willingness to just open into what's happening now, whatever's coming up 
is the moment. Let me see, where is this? From Dogen, but I don't seem to have it. Oh, here it is. Dogen Zenji. Truth is not far away. It is ever-present. It is not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. When you have thrown off your ideas about mind and body, original truth can fully appear. Zen is simply the expression of truth. Therefore, longing and striving are not the true attitudes of Zen. If you cannot find the truth right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? I love that line. I tell it to myself so frequently. If you can't find it right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? So nothing in our life is excluded. The path is lifelong and all-inclusive. And so the total commitment is this surrendering into the unknown. Again and again, we don't get to have some so that. If I do it, then this will happen. And we keep renewing our commitment. We don't know how it's going to show up in our life. We can never know. But this sense of commitment, the sense of really being fully present with how it is, then there's an, the, the wisdom, the trust, the faith arises to help us see how, in what is now, we can keep opening to the truth. This is the real uh, the resolution the determination, the depth of motivation that can come as we keep renewing and and looking into this. So I want to just tell you a story to give you an example of this resolve, this deep commitment that can only, an awakening that can come out of not getting where you want to go and then happening, but how you meet each moment and use each moment of a difficult life by surrendering into it and seeing what emerges. This is a, a, maybe you've heard of the Master Shen Yen. He was a wonderful, wonderful Chan, Chinese Chan master. And he died, um, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, not so long ago. He had a big, big scene in Taiwan. But um, I met him in Switzerland at a retreat, and then he had a place in upstate New York. I did a retreat. I only did a couple of retreats with him. But I, was, I found him a wonderful being, really wonderful. Deep, deep understanding, very relational, very kind. And he's leading a retreat in Switzerland, and we didn't really quite understand. He's like the Dalai Lama of Taiwan. I mean, he's hugely loved and had a gigantic scene, and we had no clue. And he came to teach, you know, in Switzerland, there were, you know, 80 of us just doing it. And then it was amazing he came to do it. But he, he was just wonderful. Um, so he wrote an autobiography, Footprints in the Snow. So just as a little synopsis of his life, because when we met him, he was quite elderly. So he was born in China, mainland China, um, in great poverty. And he became a monk at a young age. And he wanted to be a monk, but he also lived in great poverty. But uh, being a monk 
didn't guarantee any kind of an easy life at that time in China. This is probably, I guess, the 1920s or so. So he was really practiced as a monk, but he suffered a lot. He was hungry a lot. Life was very, very hard. And then the whole civil war came in China that I think went from 1925 up till 1949 when Mao and the communists were finally about to win. And all of that time, enormously difficult, but he, he was really devoted, committed to his life as a monk. So in 1949, when it became clear the communists were about to win, and it was also obvious that being a Buddhist monk was no longer going to be possible, if he was even going to be allowed to live, but he couldn't continue his life. And at that time, Chiang Kai-shek had gone to, to what was then Formosa, now Taiwan. So he knew he had to get out and get to Taiwan, but there was no way. He had no money. He had no way. And the only way he could get there was to join the Taiwanese, that's not the right word for it, but to join Chiang Kai-shek's army. And then they would take him to Taiwan. So he joined the army. I mean, he'd been a monk for like, I don't know, 25 years at this point. And he joined the army. They took him to Taiwan. And then he couldn't say, thank you very much. <laughs> I think I'll go down. <laughs> nice of you. He, you know, he was a monk, and he couldn't, he couldn't just get out of the army. So he said, he was in the army, but in my mind, I am a monk. So for 10 years, he was in the army. But he said, in my mind, I am a monk. And he never deviated from that. He did what he had to do, and he said somehow very fortunately, he was never put in a job that he had to kill people or do harm. You know, you think karma takes care, maybe. He was essentially a vegetarian as part of his way of being a monk. Well, that was impossible in the army. But he would avoid eating meat as much as he could till he was almost starving. Then he would eat some meat. He lived like this for 10 years. And he had this deep resolve, I am a monk no matter what. But he said at that time, nobody got out of the army. There weren't ways of getting out of the army. But some of them won't go into all the details. He did happen to meet on a week off or so some master who was, uh, you know, a Buddhist master who was living there and connected with him some. And I, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but somehow he did manage to get released from the army after 10 years. And so then he immediately went into seven years of solitary retreat after, under the, under the um, tutelage of the master there. And he said even now, even later in his life, he always did lots of prostrations because he said that was one way of really purifying his mind and body of, of all the unwholesome actions he felt he had to do you know, when he was in the army. But he was the most beautiful, deeply realized being. And so externally, it's what it is. But his commitment, I am a monk, and then being fully present, not resistant, but fully present with the situation as it presents itself. How do we surrender with awareness into this and see what presents itself? It really inspires me. So I just end with two things, one from the Dalai Lama, one from the Buddha from the Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. 
but it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. This unshakable deliverance of mind. Don't settle for anything less without striving, with total trust. (laughs) If you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? And the Dalai Lama speaking to some Western nuns and monks. One day you will become bodhisattvas in reality. So whatever obstacles there are, however long it takes, do not be discouraged. And it always just comes down to loving awareness in this moment. We can always do that. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.